the voice of God, of the divine, can be heard above the roar of the cannon. Mm. And I think it can be heard often really well when everybody's singing and when we get a few amens, <laughs> you know? And when, you know, instead of waiting for 30 minutes in the silence for somebody to have a testimony, we sing for 30 minutes and, you know, a brother or sister comes out and they, they testify. On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. Today on In Good Faith, we're really taking seriously our sort of personal sense of mission that we see God working in different people's lives in different ways. These are very different ways. We're <laughs> going to hear words like Quaker and AI in the same sentence, which I had never before put together. And we hear those two words from Professor Gray Cox, who's the author of Smarter Planet or Wiser Earth. He teaches courses at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, and is a co-founder and current clerk of the Quaker Institute for the Future. That is something I didn't know existed. I just have this vision of where the Quakers existed in American history. Ah, and that's, gotcha. you know, that's at the beginning. William of, Penn, founding right, fathers, exactly, all of that. Exactly that. And so to hear that the Quakers themselves 20 years ago were like, we need to be contemplating the future and the problems of the future. That's a really great thing. I'm glad somebody was doing that because I wasn't. I was whittling yeah. away my time watching movies. Our senior producer, Heather Bigley, in studio, now live with me. <laughs> Hello. This is fascinating to me. And one of the lovely things about the Quaker tradition is the lack of a particularly nailed-down set of beliefs. That there is an openness to people coming from other faith traditions even, other than Christianity, and following this Quaker model. And in fact, that's one of the first things that I asked our guest. As a Quaker, for me, the term faith is tied much more to experiences rather than to doctrines. Quakers are, we don't have a creed. There's no, I believe in the fill in the blank that's fixed. And, and so fel fellow Quakers may even have varying conceptions of God. They do, yeah. Mm -hmm. And come from, often from different traditions in, in doing so. But we do share sort of what are referred to as kind of core testimonies, a testimony for, for uh, peace and the conviction that there's that of God in everyone and that when we try to speak to that of God in others and listen to it in our in ourselves, we can find way open to, to engaging in nonviolent ways of reconciling all our differences and caring for the earth. That conviction is it's formulated in sort of, you know, in a, in a testimony that's not in any fixed version. And so some people will say the experience of that is that Christ has come to teach his people himself. That when two or more are gathered, Jesus is in our midst. Uh, other people have problems with the metaphysics of that, and we'll talk more about an experience of presence, of the divine, of love. People coming from Jewish or Buddhist or other backgrounds formulate the metaphysics differently. But what I think holds us together as, a, as communities is the experience of that presence when out of the silence we, we have a sense that it's not just me speaking what I think today, it's a message is coming through us of a kind of spiritual leading. 
uh, presence. That sort of frames my way of thinking about peace and about community and about all the problems uh, that we face in, in the environment and in technology with AI. I think it's a really useful model for how to meet, how to be a community. So in moving into the area of AI, I can't help but think of the idea of creation. Mm. And some would say you're creating something that some, you know, are robot overlords. Don't give them too much power. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> right. there's also the idea of being in awe of the creation of the human brain as, as you try and simulate the creation of that brain. Mm -hmm. and, and where I want to jump into this, if I could, was this fascinating idea that you bring up that instead of trying to create an adult brain, what if we could create a children's brain, one that is sort of in that state of being able to learn and adapt? Am I understanding that correctly? This idea goes back at, um, at least to uh, Alan Turing, who many of your listeners might be familiar with in terms of the what's referred to as the Turing test. There's movies about him, the imitation game and so on. He was a really brilliant and important AI researcher who played a role in World War II, but also in the development of the basic conception of what a computer is. And there's a paper in 1950 he wrote in which he basically laid out the model for what's often referred to now as the Turing machine. But in the same paper, at the end, he introduces this idea that, well, you know, if we try and design kind of like a, a complex, enormous machine, the intelligence of a human adult it's going to be really complicated and really hard for us to program all that. So, as, as you noted, the idea was, well, what if we could design a child's brain and then get it to grow? And he's very explicit that the way it would grow is through dialogue, mm. through socialization, through parenting, through play with others, through with teachers and mentors. And that process is fundamentally different. The dialogue process is fundamentally different from the mechanical, linear, and I would add monological process where one person's putting in the program that we associate with traditional kinds of computers. And I think one of the things that's um, really important to understand what's going on now, especially in the last year and a half or so, with people's awareness of AI is that with chat GPT and other kinds of large language models, as they're referred to, their techniques of growing computers using neural nets and evolutionary kinds of programming, where you, instead of programming it in a linear way, you train it kind of the way you would train a dog or slowly selectively reinforce various kinds of genes in a gene pool or, or the like. With the, um, the large language models like chat GPT, that people are now having, they're having conversations with, you know, and it, it seems like dialogue, at least, uh, in interacting with them, for those of you who've done that. So I typed in something like, please write a 600-word op-ed on why we should not be afraid of AI in the future, right? And then it turns around and predicts what's going to be the first word in that op-ed, and then the second and the third and fourth, right? It does that based on uh, having studied lots of other op-eds and lots of other text on the internet. It's read uh, something like the equivalent of what it would take us to read 500,000 years worth of text. Mm. Well, it, it's astounding. And when I think of the whole, what, what about starting from a child's brain, 
Then I'm hearing Jesus say, except you become as a little child, you can't uh -huh. inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm thinking, what are spiritual connections here? I mean, I could see a pastor saying, write me a 20-minute sermon about such and such, which could be, I suppose, a useful feature. We've talked about learning like a child, instructing. So that's what we're wondering, this process of dialogical. So the back and forth, does that teach us something about our spiritual lives? The spiritual kind of language comes in, I think, as soon as you start trying to interact with computers and with your community in ways that are dialogical. And I, it might help just to step back for a second and frame this in the, in the way that I think of it in, in larger terms, because the key point I want to make is that, for me, spirituality and spirit-led ways of thinking for humans and for machines and for communities all grow out of a way of interacting that's dialogical rather than monological or mechanical. Meaning two voices back and forth. Two or more voices, yeah. There's an alternative kind of reasoning, this dialogical reasoning, that has a different basic structure where you start with two or more points of view, two or more people with different assumptions. They don't agree on the definitions of their terms. They don't agree on their principles. They don't agree even on what rules of reasoning they're going to follow. And then the process of reasoning is one where you negotiate all that, where you come to find common ground. The goal of that negotiation process is not to just generate a conclusion, but to arrive at a genuine voluntary agreement. The second kind of reasoning is, I think for a lot of people, it doesn't even occur to them that it's a form of rationality, because the assumption is rationality is just what logic tells us. And certainly in the people who've been developing AI, most of them are trained in STEM uh, you know, science, technology, engineering kinds of education. And so they're not familiar with the research that's been done, especially in the last 50 years. There's an enormous amount of work that's been done in studying mediation, negotiation, conflict resolution, peacemaking, and done not only in seeing how uh, labor management people do it in the U.S. or diplomats do it at the international level, but how indigenous communities around the world and religious communities, Buddhists and Quakers and others do it. So there's a very rich uh, body of research on this in talking about this dialogical approach to AI. It's drawing on all those traditions for understanding how AI can be engaged with and how the Turing child can be nurtured. I want to go back to the title of the book because what you have just been talking about seems the whole idea of a smarter planet. I mean, we're all excited to have a smart home where, where I can say lights on, lights off, garage up. But you're talking about smarter planet or wiser earth. And will you talk to me about what you see as the difference there? The smarter planet vision is one that has been pursued for a while. IBM had uh, some ads in the around 2008-2009 that you know were promoting what we now think of as smart phones, smart cars, smart food systems, smart schools, smart cities, smart transport systems, smart bombs, yeah, smart battlefields in that they're run by AI. And so the idea of a smarter planet isn't just that you know we can be so much smarter in the way that we manage things, but actually the things themselves are going to be smarter. And they're going to be autonomous in 
running themselves. There are sort of two problems with that, or concerns for me, with, with that smarter planet vision. And one is, is that um, typically these smart systems focus on one or a few values. So, for example, if you just focus on test scores, you're leaving out the functions that a school serves in helping kids to develop character, develop community, provide a safe place for them to be when their parents are working, provide opportunities for developing extracurricular kinds of skills that are going to play an important role in their leisure life later, but also in their work life later. Provide, you know, sports teams that give the community a sense of identity. I, I'm going on a little yeah. bit just to emphasize the point that there are lots and lots and lots of values that schools and so on serve. And the smart systems typically leave those out of consideration. And so you end up with systems that, you know, create ecological problems and in the end, often ecological disasters of all, all sorts, uh, and, as well as social disasters and problems. Well, we mentioned schools and churches and factories. How do you see AI influencing religious life? Or do you? It already is and will continue to do it in a variety of ways, some which may be not so good and others which may be good. <laughs> you know, I think on the one hand, I suspect that there are already ministers, priests, rabbis, and others who are using uh, ChatGPT to write drafts for their, their sermons and talks, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard the other day a, a report where people were sharing that the men who are writing the vows for their weddings are using ChatGPT in some <laughs> cases just to write the whole thing, right? So people are starting to do this already, right? Uh-huh. The various functions that are involved in a church, whether it's writing prayers, vows, commitments, rules, policies, sermons, people are starting to look to AI and say, well, maybe this can help us out with it, you know? There are ways of doing that that might be useful, and then ways that, that are sort of cheating, yeah, you know, spiritually. And so you have to sort of discern about that. I think the ways that can be useful include, for example, trying to look at issues from other points of view. If I'm, you know, writing a wedding vow or writing a sermon, and I, I want to include points of view of women or people of color or some other cultural tradition, then, you know, it might be that actually AI could really help me get a list of some points to consider, some questions to ask, some things to start thinking about. Mm. I think that increasingly people are using AI as part of sort of monitoring their different aspects of their lives and their life systems, uh, their calendars, their workout routines, yep. you know, their prayer life, their meditation life. Mm. To the extent that, that people in a reflective and collaborative way, you know, drawing on co-mentors with you know, other, other people can sort of think about, well, okay, how might this be useful? How could the AI give me a nudge to remember to you know, to pray. Yeah, I've definitely seen that for adherence to Islam because those those times can change as the days get longer or shorter depending where you live, that they will re- remind you of your prayer and even to find your direction. Where Where's Mecca, by the way? Your app can tell you wherever you are if you right. don't happen to know. Right, right. Those are, those are great examples. I'm really intrigued by the idea of of what you talk about listening to be spirit-led. And so I'm guessing this might be one of your spiritual practices I wanted to ask about that that make you feel like you're in touch with the divine. Is that listening in silence or what other things are, are part of your practice? Listening in silence is 
one important part of my practice, and it's sort of there in the in the Quaker tradition, and and in doing uh, meetings for worship for the conduct of research at the Quaker Institute for the Future, we regularly include not just beginning in silence, but sometimes when things are difficult or puzzling, we might call for silence hmm. and allow a deeper listening uh, to occur. But for me, silence is not just you know the only way, and it's certainly not a end all and be all. The, the, and I think that, you know, the voice of God, of the divine, can be heard above the roar of the cannon. Mm. And I think it can be heard often really well when everybody's singing. And when we get a few amens, <laughs> you know? And when, you know, instead of waiting for 30 minutes in the silence for somebody to have a testimony, we sing for 30 minutes and, you know, a brother, sister comes out and they, they testify, you know. So for me, um, actually, music can be really important. But I think also there are a variety of other kinds of ceremony that come out of indigenous traditions. Here in Maine, really blessed to live in the unceded territory of the Wabnaki people. And when I've had a ceremony with them, it's really striking to me the ways in which it, it provides focus and open the discernment process to listen to others and be in dialogue. And, I, you know, I think God has many faces, many voices, and I don't think that they're competing. And that's partly because uh, I have, you know, this sort of non-credal approach to faith that's very experimental, experiential-based. can let me be open to different traditions and, and experiences. But it's also um, that I have a conception of science in which ultimately it's framed by the larger dialogue about what things are and what they mean. I think that our best science actually shows that the world is a very rich place. It's not just a bunch of atoms bouncing around according to mechanical laws. It has emergent structures of all sorts in biology and history, and the patterns of that emergence are formed and guided by structures of possibility that one advocate of atheism, actually, uh, Daniel Dennett has talked about sort of design space. And I think when you look seriously what, what he's talking about, science actually discovers and says, and not to, not to sort of impose, you know, some religious idea on it, but to really look, be really genuinely in dialogue about it. Mm. Where do these patterns that are discovered in chaos theory and so on, where do they come from and how do they work and how do they function? And at different levels, including in history, for example, can offer openings. And I, I, the other thing, I just have to say, I guess, too, we are really lucky to be in a really remarkable place. Mm. Being here at all, <laughs> and being, being able to be thinking, living, interacting, and so on. It, it, it's, the more I study philosophy and theories of time and so on, and science and the Big Bang and all that stuff, the more I just think, Wow, <laughs> this is just really, this is pretty freaking incredible, you know? And, and it arouses a sense of gratitude for me. And beyond what, whatever comes after, whether we have eternal souls or not, and what happens after death, I think just this miracle of life to be here at all should be a source of enormous wonder and gratitude in both science and religion for me drive that home in a profound way.
So that was Steve talking with Professor Greg Cox at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. And he is the author of Smarter Planet or Wiser Earth. And that's a question mark. And he made that point to us in our interview that it's still up to be decided. Yes, because we are in the thick of it. And something that really stuck with me is he says so much of this is technical that we've got people who have lots of STEM training. So science and technology, engineering, math, all of that. And he is saying we have to include people with other areas of expertise, including collaboration and negotiation and even peacemaking. Who thinks of that when they're putting together artificial intelligence? You know, he says in the interview that negotiation is used to arrive at genuine voluntary agreement. Mm. And... I have been thinking about that. I've been thinking about this idea. For me, that's almost religious, almost sacred. I think of my own personal experience with God where there's lots of things I don't want to do or lots of things where I want to bend the rules or lots of things. And this whole process of engaging with God is not to force me to obey. It's instead this idea that I will want to agree. And that relationship that I have with God, there are parallels in our communities that we can think of, that we can bring together, right? That working with other people to arrive at some solution for our community is not about winning or breaking the other person. It's about, hey, let's all get involved here so we all voluntarily agree in a genuine fashion. And that that's shown a light on something that I haven't thought too much about, and I, I was glad to think about it. Boy, I really, I like thinking about that. And as you're talking about it, it makes me even think, well, if there is such a thing as an omnipotent, all-knowing God, then God is not surprised at the development of AI. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe it's the knowledge, just like the science we discover, is just one more clue of God working in the world. Is that possible? Well, Yes, I think that's definitely possible. There's plenty of people who, when we talk about AI, now believe that we live in a simulation that God has created through AI. (laughs) And and I would like to have them on the show. (laughs) Okay, so please, in good faith, at byu.edu is where to email if you've got information on the simulation that's being run with with us in it right now. And I think... Dr. Cox ends on this lovely, lovely idea. Like, what what a miracle that we all exist. Yes, yes. What a miracle that we can talk and think and engage with each other and engage with the earth. And I love that. Yeah, I love that. Uh, the fact that we are here at all is miraculous and inspires, I think he said, gratitude and wonder. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Leah King, Katarina Martinic, and Ashton Rowan. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding is important to you, be sure to leave a comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on X slash Twitter at InGoodFaithPod. 
On Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. And on YouTube, our channel is www.youtube.com slash at in hyphen good hyphen faith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.